You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As you leave today, if you'll continue to keep my sister in your prayers. I know a lot of you have asked. Um, she had to be taken to the uh, emergency room by ambulance on Thursday night, um, just experiencing a lot of different symptoms that didn't seem consistent with anything. And she went to urgent care, and they had to take her by ambulance over to um, Noonan Hospital, and she was there most of the evening on Thursday. They did a CAT scan. Um, she was experiencing some tingling in, in different parts of her body and in her face, and so they did a CAT scan and an abdominal uh, x-ray and didn't find anything. And um, she's been taking it easy this weekend, but um, my mom just had to take her home because she's um, not feeling well again, and uh, the doctors haven't been able to find anything. So she's going to go home and rest and um, see if she can't get to feeling better. But just continue to pray for her because I know we kind of updated you that you know she was feeling better, but now that she's out and doing things again, she's kind of exhibiting some of those same um, symptoms again. So just continue to pray for them. Uh, we are in First Thessalonians chapter five this morning. Um, It seems like it's been a while since uh, we've been able to be in the Word together, and so I'm excited about uh, being able to look at the Word together again and be able to uh, examine it and learn from it. I want to kind of read from the beginning of the chapter back to the verses that we're on today to once again set the context for um, what Paul is is saying. For those of you that haven't been with us since the beginning of this study, this is um, one of the first letters that Paul wrote. Um, this is one of the um, early churches that he planted. Um, he was sent here directly because God gave him a vision that said, you need to go to the Macedonia area, that there are people there that need the gospel, people that I intend to save. And so God ordains that he's the one that brings the gospel to this area. He had come to Philippi, which those of you that were um, a part of main event at Mount Gilead, we went through the book of Philippians. Um, He was there first, planted that church. He was run out of town uh, because there were uh, the Jewish people that didn't appreciate the fact that he was proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. So he was run out of town, and he comes to Thessalonica. And and once again, he's planting a church, but it enrages uh, some of the religious people there, and he's forced to have to flee once again. Um, He's in Corinth at this time, riding back to this church. Uh, We estimated, based on our best guesses from What we know uh, from that time that Paul was there um, no more than a year max, Uh, maybe as short as a few weeks, most likely a few months, no longer than a year before he was run out of town. And so we've been reading this passage in the context of seeing that he was only there for a short amount of time. But look at some of the things that he was able to accomplish. Look at some of the growth that took place in these new believers. And it's a testimony to the Holy Spirit. Because he writes back and talks about these people like they've been saved for years and years and years. He writes to them like they've been growing up in church. And it's a testimony to how hard he worked as a church planter. How intentional he was with his time to disciple new believers. And we wanted to use that as a model for us. I'm constantly encouraging you that, yes, you're busy. Yes, you're tired. But we have got a job and a work to do here. Paul says in one of the chapters, he says, I worked day and night. I worked all day so that you didn't have to pay me to do this. And then he said, I spent all evenings with you making sure that you were growing up in your faith. And however long God allowed him to be there, he was intentional, intentional, intentional that he was there for a purpose. And we maintain that purpose as well, that Jesus is coming back, that we don't live for this world, we live for the next. We base our schedules on the next world and not this one. That we have got a job to do and the time is short. And we have a responsibility to be diligent in making disciples. And Paul's the ultimate example of that as he poured into this church and we see unbelievable growth happened in the people. And we've been seeing that chapter after chapter. There's, there's even very little that Paul has to address as a, as a point of correction with this church. I mean, they are being faithful, and he's constantly commending them for that. And it's a testimony, again, to what the Holy Spirit was doing in the lives of these people. So we come to chapter 5, and we spend a great deal of time looking at uh, some of the end-time theology here. I told you that 
A lot of my church planting friends told me I was crazy by starting with 1 Thessalonians because I was going to have to tackle issues uh, like the Antichrist and the Second Coming and uh, issues that are debated amongst all churches. Um, but we actually picked 1 Thessalonians because it has those things in it because we believe that the New Testament is constantly calling us to the hope of the Second Coming of Jesus, that that is what we are to uh, to be anticipating, that's what helps us fight sin on a daily basis. It's what helps us fight grief, as we saw in First Thessalonians 4. When we lose people that are close to us, we sorrow as people who, who have a hope. We don't sorrow like lost people who have no hope. We have the hope of the resurrection that happens at the second coming of Jesus. So the second coming is relevant not just for... Uh, eschatological nights where we get together and throw up charts and, and debate when's it going to all happen. It's practical on a daily basis. The Christian succeeds. The Christian perseveres when he has an understanding of end time theology. It gives him the hope every day that he wakes up why he's here and what he's got to do and what he has to look forward to. And it allows us to, to function on a daily basis it allows us to find encouragement on a daily basis when we look around and say, this isn't it. This isn't everything. This isn't the end all. I've got the hope of Jesus returning and setting everything right. We look at the fact that when he comes, he's bringing justice. He's going to deal with all the wrongs and he's going to set everything right. And we're going to enjoy him forever. And it's because of that that we said, well, we got to start here. If we're planting a church, Paul planted a church, and he hit eschatology early on with this church. Because even when he writes back to this church, there's the assumption that I've already shared a lot of this with you. And I said, you wouldn't, you wouldn't find many churches that bring up eschatology in the first year of discipleship with a new believer. And if he was only there for a few weeks, you certainly don't find churches addressing eschatology within the first few weeks of a new believer's life. And yet Paul said, I know that in order for you to persevere, you've made this decision to follow Christ. In order for you to continue following Christ, you need to know how it all ends. You need to know why we follow Jesus. You need to know that the sovereign ruler of this universe is coming back one day to set everything right. And that's your hope. So we've been seeing that as we work through this text together. First Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 12 through 13 today. But I'm going to set the context again. With verses 1 through 11, it says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And I love that analogy, and we kind of touched on that a lot there, that he, he relates the second coming to a pregnant woman, that you don't really know when it's going to happen, but everything says it's definitely going to happen. There shouldn't be complete shock when a woman has a baby, but there's still that surprise. Oh, it's today that we're having the baby. And, and this was, you know, really relevant for me back in June when Lauren and I were having AJ. Um, we didn't know. We knew the due date was, was there, um, but we didn't know when he was actually going to come. And especially after that due date, I mean, we were, we were sleeping next to the bags. I mean, we were, we were ready to go. And even when it finally came time, it was a surprise, but not one that caught us completely off guard. And Paul says that's the second coming. The Christian is going to be surprised in the sense that, oh, it was today. But that it's as certain as a woman who is pregnant going into delivery. And so we approach the second coming that way as a church. It's definitely going to happen. We don't exactly know when, but we don't have to be completely caught off guard. Verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who are asleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We talked about those three, that triad of the Christian life, the, the faith and the love and the hope that Paul hits on it multiple times in, the, in this uh, book to the Thessalonian people. That we're to increase in our faith, we're to increase in our trust. But the more we know about God, the more doctrine and theology that we take in, if it's not leading to a greater trust in God, then it's failing. 
That faith is increasing our trust. It's trusting truth. So the way you grow in your faith is you increase the amount of truth that you have to trust in. So you would expect a new believer to put his faith in Jesus, but you expect a guy who's been saved for 50 years to be putting his faith in Jesus, but he's got more faith because he knows more about Jesus than the day he got saved. So we don't have to complicate matters. What does it mean to increase in my faith? How do I grow in my faith? You just learn more truth to trust in. The more you understand about God, the more you have to trust in. And so you increase in your faith because you've got more of a foundation to put your hope in, to put your trust in. So Paul's constantly calling them to increase in their faith. And he tells them here to, uh, to put on the breastplate of faith and to put on the breastplate of love. Love being the way that we, we respond to all the theology that we're learning. We learn, we take in, we grow in our faith, and we turn around and we love other people. We, we, we allow that theology to shape the way that we live. We don't just get puffed up in our knowledge. Look at me. Look at how much I know. Look at all the degrees that I have. Instead, we learn for the purpose of trusting and then loving, loving other people. And then ultimately, it all culminates in the hope that Jesus is coming back. That's how we persevere. That's how we persevere in our faith and our love for others is that we know we've got the assurance that Jesus is one day returning. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or whether we are asleep, we might live with him. And that awake and asleep goes back to verse or chapter 4. Where these new believers were losing their friends and family. Because they, they respond to Paul's message. They say, yeah, sign us up. We want Jesus. And they're all following Jesus. And then persecution happens. And people start to die. And they're kind of writing back to Paul. Or at least communicating back to Paul and saying, what happened to the friends? But they didn't make it. You told us Jesus was coming back. But what about the people that, that don't live until Jesus comes back? And so chapter 4 is a... Is an encouragement saying, look, you don't have to worry. They're with Jesus right now, and they're coming with Jesus to be reunited with their bodies. You don't have to fret over your loved ones. They're, they're, they're taken care of. They don't get wrath. And so Paul says, whether we're awake or whether we're asleep, there's no advantage. There's no advantage to dying or living till the return of Jesus. We all get the same results. We all get the same results. So we're not destined for wrath. And then verse 11, therefore encourage one another. And build one another up, just as you are doing. So Paul says, look, I'm not just telling you about eschatology so that I can satisfy your curiosity. He says, anytime I'm talking about end times, it's so that you can take that information and encourage each other and build each other up. Again, that practical daily reason for understanding the second coming, so that I can encourage you and build you up. And Paul says, you take this information and you use it for that purpose. Then we come to verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I'm calling this last section of chapter 5, verses 12 through 28, church life until the end. Church life until the end. Remember we said that what had happened in this church is that some people had gotten really amped up about this talk of second coming stuff. And... They started neglecting like daily responsibilities. I mean, it's almost like Paul had evening in eschatology, and everybody said, "All right, new heavens, new earth. Jesus comes back. We all get new bodies. That sounds amazing. Why am I going to work tomorrow? Um, 
Let's go ahead and do all that stuff you're talking about. No sin, no death, no grief, no more tears. Let's go ahead and fast forward to that. And some of these people have started neglecting regular responsibilities. And it even becomes a bigger problem when they start having to rely on people because they don't have money to feed themselves anymore. Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just, let's just slow down a little bit. Yes, the Christian hopes in the second coming. That's what he's looking forward to. That's what he's looking for. But we still got the here and now we got to deal with. He says, look to it, but concentrate now. You've got to stay faithful now. And I've related it to um, my sixth graders. April and the month of May starts hitting. It's summertime. Summertime is here. I don't do homework anymore. I don't study for tests anymore. I am ready to be on vacation. And it's during those crucial months that I have to constantly call them back to faithfulness. Stay on hand. Stay on task. Do what you've got to do. Finish strong. It's not here yet. And that's what Paul has to do here. So he spends the first half of chapter 5 saying, hey, don't forget, you're, you're child, children of light. You're not children of darkness. Look for the second coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Be faithful. Live faithfully. Then he kind of dials it back now here at the end of chapter 5 and says, as we wait, we got to do this. As we wait, you're going to get up. You're going to go to work. You're going to come home. You're going to spend time with your wife and kids. You're going to do the next thing on Tuesday. You're going to do it again on Wednesday. You're going to do it again on Thursday. You're going to get together with your church family on Sunday. You're going to do church life, hopefully, throughout the week with your connecting points and discipleship. Because he's not coming back yet. It's not today, obviously, Paul says. And so he starts to call them to, to what a church life looks like until the end. These things have to be happening until Jesus actually shows up. Some initial thoughts that I wrote down in my notes. The end isn't here yet. We have responsibilities to tend to now. Number two, how will we deal with sin problems in the church until Jesus returns? Because here, here, sometimes we grow, we grow disillusioned with the fact that one day it's going to be perfect. One day we're going to fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ and it's going to be perfect. And we're going to have fellowship that doesn't include selfishness, that doesn't include vainglory. That doesn't include me trying to promote myself to you and tear other people down while I do it. One day when Jesus comes back, all that's done away with. We all find full acceptance in Jesus. We don't feel like we have to promote ourselves to be accepted by others. We're all able, all able to love and live in unity together. But until then, it's a battle to get to that. It's a battle to try to create that in the here and now. Because we still have our flesh. We still have sin. We still have new converts. We still have old converts that haven't figured it out fully yet. And we all come to realize that none of us are going to figure it all out until Jesus comes back. We have to deal with sin, selfishness, those type of problems in the church for the here and now. So that we can function like a church. So that we can proclaim the glorious truth of the gospel to the lost world. So that they don't look at the way we live as a church and say, if your gospel changes people, why haven't you been changed? Paul says, here's what church life has to look like until Jesus comes back. Until he fixes everything, we've got to work on, on dealing with sin through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can reflect the glories of the gospel, the glories of God, the glories of the truth of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. So he begins to give us instructions about what church life looks like until the end. Another thing I wrote down in my notes is that Satan wants nothing more to stop the church. So we've got to be proactive and on guard. Remember, Paul draws attention, and I, and I told you, Sovereign Hope, we want to be aware of the fact that there is spiritual warfare happening without elevating spiritual warfare to kind of a weird position where that's all we talk about is Satan and demons. But Paul was very aware of the fact that, hey, I tried to come back to you guys and teach you and, and help sanctify you, and Satan wouldn't let me get there. I mean, he just, he just straight up said, Satan wouldn't let me get there. He hindered my progress of coming back to you. Now, more than likely, the persecutors had made it known that if you step back here, like, bad things are going to happen. So it wasn't like Paul actually encountered uh, Satan on his road back to be with the Thessalonian people. But he recognizes any type of efforts to hinder the gospel are rooted in Satan's work. So he says, Satan is keeping me, he's hindering me from coming back. 
And so I think we have to, to realize that the truth is, is here as well, that Satan wants to hinder, Satan wants to hinder the work of sovereign hope. He wants to stop us in our gospel efforts. And again, when we say Satan, we mean Satan and his army. Because we don't believe that Satan is omniscient. We don't believe that he's omnipresent. So we know that Satan can't be in two places at once. So I guarantee you that Satan has uh, his forces focused on this area and wants to hinder the gospel from going out. So we've got to be proactive and on guard as a church that we don't allow that to happen. And we take proactive measures to make sure that we're, we're seeking unity as a church, and that's what Paul's going to call us here at the end of chapter 5. So in verse 12, Paul begins to give us instruction about how to relate to each other as the church, how to edify, how to build up, because that's how he had concluded that eschatological part in verse 11. Encourage one another, build one another up. Now he says, this is how you do it. This is how you encourage one another and build each other up. So a church life until the end, how to function as a church changed by the gospel. You see in verse 12 and 13, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Paul begins by talking about the relationship of leadership to the flock. And then he talks about the relationship of the flock to leadership. Now it's clear in the New Testament that the health of the church relies greatly on the relationship between leadership and flock. Let me say that again. The The health of the church, the health of this local church, relies heavily on the relationship of leadership and the form. If there's a a mess up in that relationship, then the health of this church quickly will deteriorate. It will quickly deteriorate if our relationship between leadership and church members, church members and leadership, begins to break down. We see in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give and have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see, the author of Hebrews kind of draw on that same thing. He says, church members, you've got to obey your leadership, make life easy on them, make their jobs easy. And then he kind of slides it in there because they have a responsibility to give an account for your soul one day on this. <laughs> They'll have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Author of Hebrews says, this has got to happen. You've got to obey and submit to godly leadership that's been put there by the, by the Holy Spirit. You've got to submit to that. You've got to obey that. You've got to follow that. Because those guys, if they're godly leadership, those guys recognize what a serious position they're in and that one day they're going to give an account for it. He says, so you can trust the fact that it's it's okay for you to submit to it because these guys recognize what a big deal it is. That they have been entrusted with something that they will give an account for. In um, 1 Peter 5, 1-5, this kind of switches it. Now the instructions given to the leadership. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see some clear instruction here that the leadership has responsibilities so that their leadership can be accepted by the people rightly. It says you exercise oversight not under compulsion, but willingly. Meaning we don't force people into elder leadership. It's one of the big things that we believe here is that if someone's going to be an elder at Sovereign Hope, the, the, the work has to start in their heart where they desire it. Well, we're going to talk in a minute about the process of becoming an elder here at Sovereign Hope because we want you to know who your leadership's going to be moving forward. But one of the very first steps in becoming an elder at Sovereign Hope is that you have to come forward and say, hey, the Holy Spirit has been working on me. I believe God is wanting me to be a leader in this local church. 
I think this, I think this starts to fall apart immediately if I start going to individuals, going to men and saying, hey, have you ever considered being a father? If I put that thought in their minds, now it's generated by man and not by God. And I think Scripture's clear. The Holy Spirit generates that desire because it's a huge task to shepherd the local church. So if I start picking out people thinking, hey, that guy'd be a good elder, that guy'd be a good elder, then I run into some big time problems in the world. This has to be something that men in our church willingly say, I believe I'm supposed to do this. And it might be even them saying, I wish I didn't have to do this, but I can't not do this. And that's what I've challenged some of the men that have talked to me about this, is that you have to feel like, I don't feel qualified. I don't feel like I want to do this, but I can't not do this. Because I told him, I said, yeah, you're going to give an account one day for how you shepherd this church. But I believe you will also give an account if you did not decide to shepherd this church. That if God was calling you to this and you ignored that calling and said no to that calling, I don't want the responsibility to be held accountable for that too. So it kind of lets them off the hook. You're going to be held accountable anyway, so why don't you just go ahead and do the right thing and become an elder like the Holy Spirit is telling you to do. You see that relationship, though, there in, in, in what Peter's saying. He says, you do it willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And if you take those things and go to the qualifications for an elder, you see why the qualifications for an elder are what they are. It's meant to prevent people from being elders and doing these type of things. You find people who don't love money so they don't become an elder for shameful gain. You find people who don't domineer in their leadership styles so they don't become an elder that does that in the local church. You examine how they lead their families. They can't manage their household well. They can't manage the church well. So God is so good in the sense that he gives us full instruction about how we're to be at church until the end. He gives us qualifications for leadership. He tells us what to do as leadership. He does everything that he needs to to ensure that the right people, if we're trying to be obedient, the right people come into positions of authority in the church. The relationship of leadership to the flock, we see this first in 1 Thessalonians 5. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. And admonish you. This aspect of elder leadership was so important in the first church. Now, the, the title of elder is not applied here. Again, remember, this is a, a, an early church. Early church. And so maybe the terms aren't being used as much as they end up being used. But what's important is that these people are known for what they do more than their title. And the fact is, these people are doing elder things. So Paul doesn't have to tell me that these are elders. I know they're elders based on what they're doing. And if they're not yet elders, they're going to become elders because this is what elders do, as we see in other passages of Scripture. But the placement of leadership took high importance in church planting. In Acts chapter 4, verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So we see the, the appointment of elders in every church in Acts 14. We also see in um, Titus 1.5. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul says this Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. It was big, like the success of the church, the, the future of the church, the perseverance of the church depended on leadership getting into position as quickly as possible. Paul says, I've got to have shepherds who can lead this church. And so we began discussing elder eldership in the very beginning when we first had the desire to plant sovereign hope. It was, okay, we want to plant a church. We feel like God's calling to this, calling us to this. Who's going to be the elders? And, and if we don't know who they are yet, how are we going to get there? Because I can't do this on my own. God hasn't called me to this. He's called us to this. And I'm trusting that God is calling other men to partner with me in this and helping to shepherd this church. There's high importance in the early church, and it's a high importance here at Sovereign Hope. But by high importance, we don't rush the process. 
We don't just find people, stick them in this position and say, now we got elders, what's next? Cross that off the list. I believe we've been very intentional since day one to try to do this as humbly as possible, to do it as biblically as possible, and to wait on the Holy Spirit to confirm this in people's hearts and to get us to that point. I look forward to sharing with you a little bit more about that here in a minute. But it was a big-time importance for Paul and others that were planting churches in the New Testament. Now, in, in before we get into what Paul tells this leadership at Thessalonica to do, we need to remember there's, there's probably a lot of youth and immaturity in these initial leaders. Paul was only there a maximum of one year. More than likely four to six months. And he's looking to appoint leadership for the church. Now in their context, now in their context, I think he has to find those that are growing the fastest, that seem to be submitting to the Holy Spirit in their life, the ones that are maybe the the more spiritually mature than everybody else. If if we took their elders and brought them to our church, people that have grown up in church, people that have, have gone to seminaries, we might look at them and say, you guys are not qualified to be elders yet. You've got a lot to learn. You've only been a Christian for like a year. Paul says, I've got to have leadership. So I've got to take the best of the best of this local church, and I've got to appoint them in leadership. I've got to pour my life into them. And it may have been that he took the guys that he was there for, he took some of those guys like Jesus did and modeled that, and said, I'm going to pour into you because I need elders to be a part of this church because I'm not staying here. But there was probably some youth and immaturity that existed in that first elder body at this church in Thessalonica. There would also have been a lack of leadership experience. We know from the context of who these people were, they were just your average people. Some of them were slaves. These guys didn't have corporate leadership experience. These guys didn't have a lot of leadership experience that they could rely on. And there was probably some co- co- potential conflict brewing. Some people saying, why wasn't I chosen to be this? Why don't I get to be a leader? I've been saved just as long as that guy. Because Paul has to call them to peace at the end of verse 13. Peace among yourselves. Which seems to indicate there was, indicate there was a little bit of conflict brewing. Maybe some people thinking, why am I not in leadership? Maybe others thinking, why is he in leadership? Because he's messing it up right now. It was youth and immaturity, and they were having to figure it out. And I think Paul's even instructing that leadership, make sure you're doing these things, because I'm telling these people to respond to you in a certain way. First thing that Paul tells them, he says, respect those who labor among you, who labor hard among you, the Greek would say. The Greek wordage here has to do with Great effort, exertion. John Stott says, it's to the point of muscles rippling, intense sweat, and exhaustion. That's intense. He says, you respect your leadership because they work hard at shepherding the church. And then he describes what working hard looks like in the Greek words that he uses. Think about those pictures, like muscles just rippling because you're working hard. I mean, you're just, you're exerting yourself. You're sweating. You're exhausted. And I've challenged the guys that have come to me about being elders, and I've said, look, you've got to understand the responsibility of this. We're going to give an account for this. We have a huge task in front of us. We have to wear ourselves out, like Paul says earlier when he says, I work tirelessly day and night. There is constant working by the elders, and that deserves their respect. But the implication here, Paul's telling leadership, you better be working hard. You better be exhausted because of how much you're doing for that church. You pour yourself into that church so that that flock responds the way that I want them to respond to you. You demonstrate the the reason they should follow you by how hard you work. Secondly, he says, they're over you in the Lord. So not only does an elder labor hard, he exercises authority. He's over you in the Lord, Paul says. 
That in the Lord phrase, I think it's important because an elder has to remember that while he has the authority to lead the church, he's ultimately submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ and his authority. He's the head of the church, not any elder of a church. So the elder's authority, what he's allowed to do and not allowed to do, comes from the authority of Jesus Christ. He's got no more authority than Jesus gives him. He's got no less than Jesus gives him. He's over the church in the Lord. He's got pastoral authority that's very similar to parental authority. Remember we talked about how Paul has used the parent analogy over and over, talking about how he cares for them like a dad. He cares for them like a mom. He uses that parental analogy so we can understand a little bit about what the pastoral leadership is supposed to look like in the eyes of the church. That's why the qualifications for an elder consist of how good is this guy being a dad? How good is this guy at being a husband? Because he's got to take those roles and use them in the church to lead the church like a father would lead his family. He works hard and he exercises authority. But in the same way we expect a, a husband and a dad to lead the family, but to lead as a servant. He cares and loves for that. He doesn't lord it over them. A godly husband, a godly dad doesn't lord that authority over his wife or his children. He humbly calls them to follow his leadership. And he shows them that they can trust his leadership and authority because of how much care he demonstrates for his family. So that his wife and his children respond to that leadership. And it has to be the same way in the church. But the elder leadership has to demonstrate that type of heart, that type of desire to care and to lead so that the flock naturally responds to that. He says, you work hard, you exercise the authority because there has to be authority in the church. There has to be leadership. Then he says, they also admonish you. Admonish you, which means provide instruction. That word admonish has to do with working to correct and change people. Now, this is a responsibility that all Christians have with each other. We're told to admonish one another, meaning that we're told to, uh, when we see someone falling into sin, we're to go and and take care of that with with a brother or sister. We're to call that out. In the most loving, humble way possible. Matthew 18 gives us that model that we do it out of love. We do it out of wanting to cover that sin and protect them so we don't make it known to everybody. First time somebody sins, we don't tell the church about it and say, hey, pray for this person. We send them in, and we send them in phases because we want to keep it as small as possible. And we only go to the church in, in a last-ditch effort saying, we need everybody's help on this. Go get this person. Go love this person back to Jesus. We can't lose this person. So everybody has that responsibility to admonish one another. But that word admonish has to do with correcting and changing people. And that's definitely a function of an elder. Because an elder has the responsibility to teach. It's the main qualification that separates deacon and elder. All the other qualifications are about the same. So what's the difference between a deacon and an elder? One feels called to teach and one's gifted to teach. One wants to teach. One feels like, I can't not teach. I can't not teach. I want to admonish the flock by teaching the Word of God. I enjoy it. I love it. I want to do it. That's the big difference. It's because we're called to admonish. The leadership is called to admonish the flock. Titus chapter 1 verse 9. Talking about God's leader says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. God needs leadership for his church that can teach and instruct people in the gospel, instruct them about doctrines that their faith can increase because they're learning new truth and trusting in that truth. And we also need leadership that can refute the false doctrines that are out there. Because, again, Satan wants to stop the advancement of the church. He wants to distort teaching so that it hinders the growth of the church. And we have to have leadership in place that can protect this church body from that type of false teaching. So that's what the elders do, according to um, Paul in 1 Thessalonians. He says, you respect, you, you honor, you love the people that are working hard. That are over you in leadership. 
that are admonishing you. You esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So the response for the flock to the leadership is respect, esteem, and submit. Respect, esteem, and submit. The word respect there has to do with valuing their service and knowing them so that you can respect them. Learning to to come to a knowledge of who your leadership is, pursuing relationship with your leadership, so that you can genuinely respect that leadership. He says you respect them for what they're doing in your church. They work hard. They go to bed at night tired, not just from their job, not just from being a husband and dad, because they've been thinking about the church all day long. They've been trying to figure out discipleship for your church all day long. They've been trying to figure out how to get you over to a building all day long. They're trying to figure out the issues with nursery and kids' classes, all this. That's what they think about all the time. They're they're sweating, they're exhausted from it. He says, you respect them for that because they love this church and they're showing it and how hard they're working for this church. You esteem them, you love them because of their work. The Greek word there where it says, esteem them very highly. It means abundantly. It means out of bounds. You love them so far that it's almost out of the bounds of how much you could love somebody. A good example of of, of loving leadership to this point is in Galatians 4. Galatians 4 verse 12. Brothers, this is Paul again talking to the church at Galatia. Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. We don't know what the physical ailment is that he's talking about, but it may have very well had something to do with his eyes. He says, you loved me to the point that if you could have, if if the medical technology at that time was possible, you would have taken your eyes out and given them to me. You don't find a lot of churches that love their leadership like that. There aren't many leadership that, that, that are loved by their church in such a way where you say, hey, I'm in need of some eyes. Can you sign up at the back and give them to me? You just don't find that. You find people that are ready to criticize. People that are ready to say, I'd do it differently than that. You find people that say, have they thought about this? You don't find a lot of people that say, I love my leadership in my church so much. If I had to, I'd give them my eyes. Paul says, that is what you demonstrated to me. You loved me so much that you would have gouged your eye. You would have done anything for me. You would have done anything. There was no bounds to your love. I mean, because some of us would draw the bounds at that. You know, like, I'm going to love you. But I don't know if I can do that. that. That is beyond what I'm capable That's out of bounds. Paul says, you, you esteem them highly. You love them out of bounds. You love them to the fullest, and then you keep going with it. And we see that it's possible because Paul felt that way about the church at Galatia. He says, you, you love me to the fullest. The church has the responsibility to respect and to esteem their leadership and to submit to their leadership. To submit. Back in 1 Thessalonians 5. You esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. You don't find the word submit there. But the fact is, at some point, at the end of the day, somebody has to provide the leadership. And everybody else has to fall in line in peace with that leadership. I sit in, I sit in meetings with our leadership, and, and I can guarantee you, we talk about everything that we can think of when it comes to how we're going to do the nursery, how we're going to do the kids' stuff, how we're going to do this. We examine it from every angle that we can think of. We try to think about everybody's needs in this church how will it affect these people? How will it affect these people? And thankfully, we're in a church small enough where we can actually name people by name and not just say the people with kids. We can say, how will it affect this family? 
How will it affect this family lives here? How will doing this affect this family? What strain will it put on this family? At the end of the day, some decisions have to be made. They have to be made for the for the for the best good for the amount of people that we can. And then as leadership, we've got to be able to trust that the response will be one of peace. Because the flock sees and they're hard. They labor for this. They're, they're tired at the point of, of, of because of how much they've worked for this. I'm going I'm 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 to trust them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to esteem them. I'm going to be at peace. I'm not going to criticize because I certainly haven't spent all night thinking about this issue in our church. You're just kind of off the top of your head saying, well, what about this? What about this? What? He says, you be at peace. You trust these guys worked hard. They thought, they thought as much as they can. You offer insight where you got it. Ultimately, you be at peace amongst yourselves. You be at peace amongst yourselves. And I put in my notes, we set our preferences aside so we can be at church, be at peace in our church so that we can concentrate our peaceful efforts outside the church. If the church is constantly having to fight for peace within the church, then it means we're not calling people to peace with God outside the church. If all of our efforts and discussion and focus has to be on, hey, we've got to maintain unity in our church, peace in our church, we've got conflict in our church, we've got people that don't want to do this, people that are upset about this, if we're always having to focus on peace within our church, we cannot focus on peace outside the church. Paul says, be at peace among yourselves so that we don't have to deal with that kind of stuff so that we can move forward and call people to peace with God. If we're constantly fighting for peace within ourselves, then we're not able to fulfill what God has called us to with the Great Commission. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And imitate their faith. We want leadership who who you want to follow, who you want to imitate. He says, remember what they're doing. You imitate their faith. My hope is that this church is never known for conflict and strife within the church. My hope is that the lost see that at times we have conflict and strife. But that the gospel shapes how we handle it and how we deal with it and how we constantly pursue unity despite our preferences. And I, and I praise the Lord for the fact that over the past uh, year and a half to two years that we've been meeting, that we've never had an issue in this church. That we've never had something that we had to sit down and talk about, hey, this is starting to happen and we've got to deal with this. My prayer is that that continues. That continues, that you guys continue to lovingly follow the leadership that God is placing in this church you can trust that every day that I am I am praying that God will lead me to humbly lead this church in the way that he wants that I have no desire to domineer and to uh, to exercise my authority in a way that would be repulsive to God nor do I have any desire to see leadership brought into positions of authority in this church that would do something similar Application, and then we'll be done. How does leadership look at sovereign hope? How does leadership look at sovereign hope? Those of you that have been here, you've kind of been around for our discussion about elders, but I wanted to kind of recap this real quick um, for how eldership works here at Sovereign Hope. One, for a person to be an elder here at our church, you must be a male member who meets the qualifications in Scripture. Those qualifications are listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. A lot of this information is in our How We Function document, so if you don't get it all down, then you're, you're welcome to reference that. It's our church bylaws. Um, we just call it How We Function because it kind of makes it similar to the purpose of this document as it tells us how we typically do things here. Uh, they also have to affirm the sovereign hope statement of faith and they have to be actively serving in our church. Secondly, they must have a desire to be an elder. They have to have that desire. We don't approach men in our church about being elders. They have to have that desire, and they express it to the current elders. The current elders here right now would be me. And so um, and we're not okay with that. And we have external elders in the process. So um, 
the guys at Snowbird Wilderness Outfitter, Outfitters in Andrews, North Carolina, Rob Conti, Sean Clark, and Spencer Davis, they are our external elders, which means we constantly run stuff by them. They are elders at their local church, so we rely on their leadership to help us until we can appoint elders in this church. Um, but the elder, the person who wants to be an elder has to express that desire. Number three, any person who is not found disqualified, meaning after we look at those qualifications, anybody that's not disqualified enters into an indefinite period of what we call elder apprenticeship here. Let me explain to you what that means. We look at the qualifications of an elder. Uh, let's say that Toby says, hey, I want to be an elder. He comes to me and says, I'm, I'm, I feel like the Holy Spirit's moving me in this direction. I sit down with Toby and I say, okay, let's look at the qualifications. Is there anything that disqualifies you? We don't look at it and say, I'd like you to be more hospitable. Like, you're going to need to be more hospitable to be an elder. We look at it specifically to say, are you disqualified? Is there anything that you're just absolutely known for that's not good, that doesn't fall in line with the qualifications? And then we allow them to enter into elder apprenticeship, with the purpose being that we help current elders help disciple those men to increase in those areas of qualification. So we would help instruct Toby about hospitality. Hey, you're not where we want you to be, but you're not an unhospitable person. So we're going to help cultivate that in your life. And we would do that with each qualification. We would say, hey, you're not disqualified, but you're not ready to be an elder. You're an elder apprentice. This is for anybody that's a member, because we're not going to say that you have to be a member for X amount of years to finally become an elder apprentice. When you're a member of our church, you're ready to serve in our church. And it may be years before you get out of being an elder apprentice, but members enter into that and intentional discipleship with our elders. We begin to grow and cultivate, because we want to be a church that's constantly growing and raising up leaders. Because if we're going to be a church planting church, which is our desire, and we're probably not getting much bigger than what we got here. And when we max out, we're planting another church. And we need elders to go plant that church. So we're constantly wanting to raise up leadership. But they enter into that elder apprenticeship for an indefinite period. We review it at least every six months to see where that person is in their qualifications of being an elder. Once the elder body feels comfortable saying, hey, this person is biblically qualified, they, they meet the expectations, they're at a level of qualification where we feel good about it, they enter into what we call elder candidacy. That lasts for nine months. The hope is that it basically starts in September and ends at the end of the school year. I'm a teacher. I work off teacher calendar. So let's start things in September and then in May. Um, because there's a lot of weird stuff that happens with church schedules in the summer. Um, people are gone. People are out. So we try to keep the elder candidacy September to May. Um, that's when we like for people to be able to enter into that. Um, that lasts for nine months. At the end of the eighth month, during that nine months, those elder candidates start to assume more and more leadership in the church. They start getting more and more responsibility. And you begin to see that. We tell you, hey... This guy's becoming an elder candidate. He's got nine months to become an elder now. We put him on the time page. You begin to see him function in that leadership. He's not an official elder. He doesn't make official decisions that an elder would make. But he begins to function like one. He begins to see, can I handle the elder expectations that are here at Sovereign Hope? Because what an elder does, to what extent, kind of differs church to church. At the end of the eighth month, we share with you, the church, and say, this person is still in it. They still want to do it. You've got a month to tell us if there's a reason they shouldn't be an elder. Things that you've noticed over the past eight months, things that are a concern or a problem, you let us know that. And then we affirm them, pray over them, and they become an elder here at Sovereign Hope. Elders' wives here at Sovereign Hope. One thing that we have uh, kind of changed here. We desire for our elders' wives to not specifically be in charge of any ministries in our church. Uh, we want the elder wife to see that her way of serving this church is through supporting her husband and the ministry that he does here. So we don't want families being overworked because we've got an elder and a nursery director. We've got an elder and one who's trying to take care of the kids' class. And so we started making adjustments. My wife was handling the kids' class. Melissa handled the class. 
Jim stepping away from the nursery. Um, we've been in conversation about what we're going to do next with that. Um, and moving forward, we want our elders' lives to see their task, their responsibility to support their husband. Deacons in our church. I'm excited about the fact that um, most churches are, or a lot of churches are shifting back to a biblical understanding of eldership. A lot of churches still struggle what to do with deacons. Um, if you look in 1 Timothy 3 at the qualifications of deacon, you get the qualifications for elder through verse 7. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So in order to be a deacon at Sovereign Hope, and we've not had deacons before, and we're about to roll forward with deacons because there's a need for deacons in our church now. To be a deacon in our church, you must meet the qualifications laid out in 1 Timothy 3. And you have to be faithfully serving in the church. If you go to verse 11, it says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The original Greek, there's no pronoun for wives. It's just not there. Um, it's actually the word women. So if we were to read it, it would say, Women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So the correct interpretation is probably not wives. And you would expect there to be qualifications for an elder wife, but there's qualifications for a deacon wife, right? I mean, if one position is more important as far as what the responsibilities are, you would expect the wife of an elder to have to meet certain qualifications if you're expecting the deacon's wife to meet qualifications. But you don't see that with the elders' wives. They're not mentioned. Um, Romans 16, verse 1. A little bit of Bible trivia for you. The only person mentioned as a deacon in the Bible is our sister Phoebe. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria. The word for servant there, if your study Bibles are handy, it's it's the Greek word for deacon. Um, I don't see any uh, any restrictions in Scripture placed on the gender of a deacon. Um, and so here at Sovereign Hope, we're allowing both men and women to be deacons because of the purpose of what deacons do. The Bible says very, very little about what deacons do, actually. It's very, very vague. Some people want to point to the book of Acts when... Um, the apostles were getting overloaded with the, with the widows and stuff that needed food. And they say, five to seven men to help disperse the food. They never called deacons. If we want to assume that they were doing deacon job, um, we can. But they never called deacons. But they're simply put in charge of distributing food um, to help allow the elders, the apostles, to do their job of preaching the word, studying the word, and praying. So here at Sovereign Hope for Deacons, they meet the qualifications laid out in Scripture. They can be man or woman. They're to be appointed by the elders when certain areas of church life are identified as possible hindrances to the main focus of teaching and prayer that the elders have. So we need deacons in this church when we recognize that there are things that elders are having to do that's taken away from our primary responsibilities. So here at Sovereign Hope, we want to identify specific people to oversee a specific responsibility. So deacons will serve in a specific capacity, overseeing specific ministries that take place throughout the week. Not ministries that specifically take place on Sunday. So we're not going to take the the person who coordinates our nursery and make them a deacon or a deaconess. We're going to restrict Sunday ministries to Sunday we're all here to serve. It's stuff that happens during the week that takes away from an elder schedule where we're like, I'm I'm, I'm handling this and I'm not able to study and teach and and meet with guys and meet with families and do what I'm supposed to do. Um, More deacons will be added as more needs arise. There's not really a need for ordination. The Bible doesn't talk about ordaining leadership anyways. Um, there's not really a need for ordination. 
because we're simply having people serve and do ministry-type things that elders just don't have the time for. Now, some of you might be freaking out a little bit saying, whoa, 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 what, what just happened there? Um, this is something I've been thinking through and, and studying through since back when we were at Mount Gilead for a lot of us. I've relied a lot on John MacArthur on this. He's written a lot on this, and I've um, seen what he has to say about some of these passages, and I, and I totally affirm what he's saying. Um, Talked with our, our external elders at, at Red Oak Church in North Carolina. Um, they're handling deacons very similar in their church. They're saying, look, we got stuff that we're doing, like posting podcasts and handling websites and doing this, and at least don't have time for that. So we're finding individuals in our church making them deacons, not calling them ministry leaders, which isn't in Scripture. We want to give people titles that Scripture uses. Um, and so we're wanting to identify men and women to help us in different aspects of our church. And we've identified three individuals that we feel like have already been faithful to serve in our church, meet the qualifications, and are willing to not really take on any more responsibility, just to continue doing what they're doing, but we're just going to identify them properly, I think, the way the Scripture would want us to. Um, Chris Henson has been overseeing, or will be continuing to oversee, our benevolent ministry. Um, now that we have a building with a door that says Sovereign Hope Church, people are going to see this during the week, and they're going to come and want money. They're going to have needs, and they're going to see us as a place that potentially have those needs met. We need to be equipped to handle that. We talked with Legacy Church recently. They're having all kinds of nightmares, trying to track people, who they're helping, are they legit, have they been to other churches. So we've got a responsibility to make sure that we are faithfully taking care of the needy and the poor in this area, but doing it responsibly. And that's just something that elders do not have the time for because of other things that we have to do. Chris has agreed to oversee that, to oversee our benevolent ministry. Uh, ben, um, who's been with us since the beginning, Ben Schwarting, the back over here, um, he has uh, agreed to oversee our finances as a church. He's agreed to maintain the budget, maintain our giving every week, oversee the counting process on Sundays, make sure the money gets deposited, make sure bills are getting paid, to coordinate stuff with our financial secretary, um, to make sure that all that's being handled in a timely manner, things are getting paid, things are going where they need to, and there's full accountability to how our finances are made. So that when you have questions about the finances, you come to me and I say, no, 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 no. You go to Ben, who's the deacon of the finances. Um, and then thirdly, we've identified Melissa Mills. Melissa agreed at the very beginning to oversee um, meals for families that are going through any type of grief, going through the, the birth of a new child. Um, she's also agreed to oversee coordination for showers, when there are baby showers, bridal showers, all that kind of thing. Things that you definitely don't want the elders handling because it will be a complete disaster. Um, so those are three areas that we felt like are in need, things that need to be administered, handled, overseen, that we just don't have the time for. Um, we believe these three have demonstrated the qualifications. I believe they've been tested and found blameless in the sense that they've been functioning in these roles and doing a really good job. We want to uh, share that with you as the church. Um, you're not going to really find any ballots in your in your chairs because it's not really a voting type thing. They don't have authority. They don't have anything that really needs to be voted on. They're simply functioning in roles that they've already been functioning in. Um, they will continue to submit to the leadership and the direction and the vision of the elders here at this church. Um, and so, again, there's a lot of freedom, it seems, in the New Testament. We're not getting a lot of instruction about how deacons work, how deacons function. And so we're kind of exercising some of that freedom to figure out what we need deacons to do and how that looks in this local church. Um, and so we want to move forward in that direction. Adam and Tyson, who I've mentioned already, if you guys can just raise your hands. Um, these two men have agreed to pursue eldership at our church. Um, they've been elder apprentices since the day we started, really. Um, I shared with you, we weren't really meeting yet, or we weren't meeting consistently because of the whole building stuff, but I did share with you back in the beginning of September that these guys were entering into elder candidacy. So their nine months has already started. Um, they are starting to get more and more responsibility. They started teaching some on Sundays. They will continue to do some of that over the next eight months, um, filling in for me and, and demonstrating to you their desire and their capability of teaching. Um, I want you as a church 
to be praying for them and to be examining them over the next eight months or the next six months, whatever it is now. Because in uh, the month of April, we will present them again to you. And we'll say, look, it's, this is the time now we're ready to make these guys elders in the next month. Um, is there anything that you've seen that would make you leery of having them be the type of leadership that you're supposed to respect and love out of bounds and, and submit to? Um, so just to kind of give you some clarification about how this passage relates to leadership here at Sovereign Hope. Any questions about any of that that I can help um, clarify, perhaps? Anything about deacons? Anything like that? If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to ask. Um, I'm excited about the direction that that our church is going with leadership. I think that God's raising up people that are going to be a joy to submit to, a joy to follow. They're going to have faith that's worth imitating. Um, And I'm excited about seeing God continue to bless that as we move forward. I'm going to pray for us, and um, we're definitely going to get the air fixed before next week because it is roasting in here. Even though it says 72 degrees, it's not. So put that on the list of things to do before we meet next week. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this church. I thank you for the time that we've had today to kind of get back on the same page together. God, I know you're bringing us new people, and I think it was important for us to be able to clearly identify some things that we're wanting to do in the near future. God, I thank you for how you're growing this church, how you're raising up leadership in this church. Um, Father, we're excited about that. God, I pray that you would just continue to give us direction and wisdom moving forward. We are ignorant about how to plan a church. And God, we are just asking that you will continue to give us the wisdom and direction we need. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.